Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Okay, so we'll be in Numbers 10 tonight as we dig in. Uh, I'm going to, usually I do kind of the here's where we're at and I go through it, but we got nine chapters of that now. So the summary of the last nine chapters is they have prepared for the wilderness. And they've done all these steps and things to prepare for the wilderness. And Paul's got the list. If anybody needs it, he can kind of go through chapter by chapter uh, in the book of Numbers. So now they're going to travel with the Lord. And this is the week we get to actually move again. And it's been like a year for us since they've been at the foot of Mount Sinai. But they're going to move. Um, So that's how that's going to work. And the Lord tells Moses how they're going to move. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for the calling the congregation for directing the movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation together shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel shall gather to you. So silver is, and we saw with the tabernacle, God uses certain metals, certain materials um, that has some connotation to it. And we've seen that silver is one of those metals that's usually associated with heavenly things. Uh, So the trumpets being made is silver and hammered. Uh, The other hammered piece we saw was the lampstand. Remember, it was one hammered piece, and they made a big deal out of that. So these are instruments that will be used to communicate with Israel um, and to move forward. It's not a normal horn. So they have a word, the word is shofar, for a normal horn that's made out of a ram's horn. So these silver trumpets, they had to find some other word for it. These are not your typical kinds of trumpets. These are special, they're loud, they're, they're, they're blasting. If you like trumpet sections in a band, uh, there's going to be a few of these. They'll, they'll multiply as we go through the Bible. So by the time we hit Solomon, there's going to be an army of horn blowers. With Joshua, there's a whole group of them that kind of go out in front of the city as they march around it. Uh, but these are kind of, these are not common horns. These are special horns in use for these kinds of purposes. Here they're a tool for communicating. They've gotten ready to move. They know the visual signal from God is that Shekinah glory, that cloud lifts up physically from the tabernacle. And now they've got an audible system to go with their visual system. So we have AV going on. So this is the first kind of um, social media. This is how they're going to talk to each other because they can't just do a group text or a group me or anything like that. What they do have are trumpets. Uh, where they can hear these long, epic trumpet blasts, and they're going to use them for communication. This is not unique to Israel, because at this era, this is trumpets were often used to communicate with armies, different kinds of trumpets, like a staccato trumpet blast versus a long blast, would have different meanings to the people that have it. All they need to do is like know what the meanings are. Um, two little about this opening passage, just two little things. It's interesting how it says the Lord says to Moses, make trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation. But then look in the next sentence. It shifts to they. 
like there's other people that are going to be blowing the horns for them. And that will be the case. Um, but I just thought it was interesting that it's almost like God's dealing with two different realities here. One is the immediate reality of Moses with the nation of Israel. The other is this reality that could be in the future or could be messianic or could be part of the second coming of Christ um, where we're going to see trumpets getting blown too. And we'll get into that in a bit. Um, there are different ways to blow it, blowing both of them, blowing one of them, which have different messages. Verse five, when you sound the advance to move forward, the camps that lie on the east side shall begin their journey. When you sound the advance the second time, the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey and they shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. So this is how we're going to get moving. Um, the marching blasts in Jewish tradition are short blasts. Burm, 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 burm. So it's kind of almost like a footstep that would happen. So you'd hear these trumpets making a footstep sound and the camps would know it's time to move. In order to start their journey, it means they already had to be prepared. So to keeping this kind of the picture in your head, they see God move first and they respond to God and prepare themselves. But they listen for the humans that God's been working with to sound the trumpets before they actually start to march. And in the church, it works that way a lot too. We all come into the church wanting to move and ready to move and preparing ourselves to do things for the Lord. But sometimes we wait for our team to move as one and you move in that unity in Christ. Verse seven, and when the assembly is to be gathered, you shall blow, but not sound the advance. So for assembling, and I can't help it, to me, I'm thinking of Avengers Assemble, right? So there'd be these long blasts that would go off that would say, we just want to bring everybody together to talk. And they had two different ways, remember, different ways to do it. But imagine this picture, because they're camped at different distances from the, the, the tent. So when, you're, when you hear these trumpets blow, Moses would kind of wait at the opening of the tabernacle, and then Nashan would come walking up because he's closest to the front of that door, right? The eastern door, and he'd be... The first one to show up was Nishan, and then there'd be Aaron, Moses, and Nishan standing there. And then we would see Elizur come, and Elishima would kind of get there at about the same time. And suddenly the Avengers would assemble, right? And you'd see this gathering moment, and there's something that stirs the soul, and it still does in modern storytelling, right? The leaders of each of the tribes come in one by one. And I, old adventure movies, that happened all the time. You know, they'd all be very different characters and personalities. And with the tribes, we'll, we'll start to see those personalities emerge too. Until the last one that comes strolling up is going to be the warriors that cover the back guard of the camp. Dan's going to come walking in, you know, and he's, you know, then everyone's there and gathered, ready to hear their mission. And it's kind of a moment that would be kind of stirring to the soul, especially when trumpets started out. Um, and I think that there's shadows of that that we see in movies that kind of stir our soul in the same way. But this was real. This is how that would happen. And so they'd blow those trumpets. The champions of each of the tribe would kind of gather and get ready to talk. Um, and we'd have these mighty heroes that are gathered together, rough, battle-hardened, 40 years in the wilderness after some time. These are tough people that have gone through tough things. So, and of course, I see all this when you imagine this scene. It's all in slow-mo, right? So they come through the doors like Aragorn, just, you know, and they've arrived. They're here. So when these people gather together, this is a moment God's about to do something. When these 12 people plus Aaron and Moses, when they gather, this is a moment in Israel. Something's going to happen. Directions are going to turn. Camps are going to camp or not camp. Um, and we shall have these things. So these will be a great and a mighty nation together. Genesis 18, 18. Abraham shall surely become a great and a mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. 
That's what's going to happen when these people gather. When those trumpets blow, the people of God will come together and they will conquer. And I think that's a cool moment. And as a Christian, that happens today too. When God brings people together, things happen. Lives change. People get saved. And it's kind of neat. God's appointed his leaders here. And those leaders are watching the cloud every day, every night. And they coordinate their timing as, as, as coordinated as they can and as organized as they can. They're not all willy-nilly about it. They're of one mind and one accord. They know the trumpet symbols, right? And God's people are then going to move with order. And they're going to go in an orderly way. So that's what we'll see. The sons of Aaron, verse 8, the priests shall blow the trumpets. So now we know who's blowing the trumpets. It's not Moses, it's they, right? Shall blow the trumpets and these shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. There's two ways to read that. We've seen that phrase before. One way to read it is forever throughout your generations. The generations part means Israel. This is just for the Mosaic era of Israel. So the generations of Moses. Another way to read that is the forever and put the emphasis there, which is forever as in the end of time. So when we see that phrase, we should always read that in the Old Testament as, is this speaking to Jesus's first coming and, and, is it, and or is it speaking to Jesus's second coming too? So when we see trumpets and we see a phrase like that at the end of the passage, we should be kind of thinking about that. So very quickly, Think of where these trumpets get blown that we know of, the big popular stories. Joshua blows them in Joshua 8 to knock down the walls of Jericho. When the, the men of God come together and there's this movement and they're marching around the city, they blow these trumpets and that's what knocks them. Well, they blow the trumpets and then they all shout. There's a beautiful veggie tale scene that shows this, but I have a feeling the real gritty scene would be much more impressive. Right? So this is a moment when God actually moves with his people and with their voices. 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Right, So this is something that Christians recognize too. One of the ways to look at silver trumpets is that this is a communication tool that we have with God. And when we pray together and gather together to pray, there's power in that. And it's an essential power for believers. And we haven't really got to something in the book of Numbers that really addresses this prayer thing. But as they're going to journey and as they're going to move, it is what initiates movement. So you can do all that preparation work in Numbers and not come to the Lord in prayer. And you're kind of at a stall at that point. If you're at a church that doesn't pray together, you're not going anywhere. It's a dead end. So praying together and organizing and coordinating for prayer is part of what we're trying to do with Katie. Right? Because we're trying to say, okay, we need to organize for this. And we need to be deliberate about what we're doing, just like Moses was doing. We need to know the signals for the trumpet blares. Like, are we praying for a praise? Or are we praying for uh, something we wish to have, like a new job? Are we praying uh, for something we're grateful for? And are we doing those kinds of things together? And we'll start to see God works and answers those prayers. And then we can celebrate and glorify God when he does together as a group. That's so amazing. And we could even imagine it in slow-mo if we want to, right? There's power in those kinds of scenes. We also see trumpets, one of the more prominent places of trumpets is at the rapture. Um, these trumpets are going to blow and God will gather his people together. The theme stays the same. And when God gathers his people together, something new is about to happen in the kingdom. This is an, an epic kind of moment when you hear the trumpets blow. First Thessalonians 4, 16 is just one of the references. There's another one in Matthew. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an angel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Yeah, that's pretty epic. 
Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Revelations 8 has angels lining up and an army of angels, and they're going to blow trumpets, and the Bible says it'll shake the entire planet. So, And I don't know if you're watching the news right now, and the news is so filled with what's in the news cycle, but we also had eight earthquakes this last week, in, or was it three weeks or four weeks ago? in really weird places all over the planet. Like the rate of earthquakes is increasing right now. You think of those things. Not only that, but Kenya is being eaten alive by locusts, right? We got plague, an entire planet of plague concerns going on. And, and I, growing up for me, and I can't speak for other folks, but I've spent 40 years, and you might have a famine in Ethiopia, and then three years later you have a locust attack in Malaysia and whatever, but now they're happening all at the same time. And you just keep those things coming and moving through. Um, so save it for when we get done, Gary. Okay. Um, verse nine, when you go to war in your land against the enemies who oppress you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets and you will be remembered before the Lord, your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Wow. This is an eternal throughout your generations idea. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound the alarm with trumpets and you'll be remembered before the Lord your God and you'll be saved. God promises to hear us when the trumpets sound. It makes me want to go buy a trumpet, right? So the literal piece in the Old Testament, when we see the figurative idea of prayer as this communication tool we have with God today, it makes this idea really exciting. Also, verse 10, in the day of your gladness, and this is in contrast to verse 9. Verse 9 is when things are going bad, God promises to listen. Verse 10 is when things are going good. In the day of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over your sacrifices of peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for, for you before your Lord your God. I'm the Lord your God. Talk to God all the time. Blow the trumpets. Pray. So if that image is holding true and that idea of trumpets being a form of prayer, we pray in bad times, we pray in good times, we pray to start things, to end things, we pray over our feasts, and even today we still pray over our meals. We pray over our Bible study. We pray over our missions work. We pray over our jobs in the morning. We pray for the people that God's put under our authority. We pray for the people that are above us and in authority over us. We pray all the time without ceasing. Symbolically, it's interesting here that the trumpets are not for the people to hear. Do you see that in these verses? In verse 9 especially, it is not so people will hear the trumpets. And Jesus t teaches us too, don't pray where everybody can hear you. That's not what, pray where God can hear you, right? Who hears the trumpets in this? When you blow the trumpets, you will be remembered before the Lord your God. God hears the trumpets. And it's not like God is deaf or needs trumpets to hear his people. But when we do what God asks us to do, a la blow trumpets or pray, God honors that and hears us, right? So we sound an alarm in verse 9. The alarm is ruah. It's different from verses 7, 8, and 10. Uh, there's a group of people here in, in, a, in a ruah um, where they gather together. In other words, there's some influence here when things are in a time of trouble in verse 9. That's where we have groups of people gathering to blow trumpets. And in good times, it's more an individual trumpet that blows. And that should be like that in prayer too. When we have people that are struggling, we have as many people as we possibly can pray for that. Because when things are tough, you gather and pray. When things are going good, sometimes we just praise the Lord on our own in our daily prayers and that sort of thing. Okay, Solomon dedicates the temple in Second Chronicles, if you want to go into that. At that point in time, there's 120 of these trumpets. 
Now, if you listen to jazz at all, sometimes you might have a trumpet section with two or three horns and it sounds amazing. Imagine 120 of them. And these are Jews, they don't do anything sloppy, right? So it would be 120 horns that would be organized and coordinated. There might be hidden horn ensemble scripts somewhere where 120 horns all have different parts. And you can imagine how amazing this would sound, right? Even if they all blew the same note, 120 of them would be epic. So you think of that and you think of just this kind of thing and, and, and think, boy, it'd be really cool today if somebody put together a 120 horn ensemble and let it rip. And it would be something to hear, but it would be it would hurt your ears. Hezekiah blows the trumpets to reinstate Israel in Second Chronicles 29. Trumpets and coronets make the joyful noise that we all quote from uh, Psalm 98, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. That's trumpets making that noise. The day of your gladness is shimka. It's one word. It means exceeding joy and even mirth or gladness. When you're laughing out loud with joy and your belly hurts from laughing, that's the day of your gladness. It's an abounding or overflowing joy. And when we have those moments, we remember the Lord. And when we're struggling, the Lord remembers us and takes care of us. What a nice contrast. In good times and bad, blow the horns. They're remembered or brought to mind in verse 9. And they are a memorial in verse 10. You see those two words? Verse 9, it's a verb. And in verse 10, it's a noun. And there's a difference there. So in verse 9, when tough times are tough for us, there's an action that happens on God's part. And that's either to bring comfort, to bring ability to overcome, or to do something in our times of need. And in verse 10, when things are good, that we are, there is a memorial, zikhaun. It's a memorial of something that is remembered when things are going great. So it exists already. It's an expression of worship. Now is a new section in verse 11. So we kind of wrap up that section on the trumpets. And I know I'm reading prayer into that a lot, but I, I hope that with all those references, like there's a consistent pattern that we're going to begin with this passage where trumpets become a major element throughout the Bible of what God does when God's people obey him and do what he says. And they're a communication tool. So verse 10, we're going to depart from Sinai and we'll move along. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year, that the cloud was taken up from the, above the tabernacle of testimony. Oh, so we've spent a lot of time on 20 days. God makes them wait again. Six days, remember Passover was on day 14. So they're just going to wait for another six days, even after they're told how to go. And they get up and they go. God makes it clear when it's time to move. They have their daily prayer. They wake up. The cloud has moved. And it's been like, imagine after six days you get impatient. But at this point, the cloud goes up. That all happens. And when God gives that motion, they probably hear the trumpets blow because that was part of how we're going to do all this. And things are happening. They didn't sound that bad. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Then the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So in chapter 12, they're going to arrive in Paran, which will be their next big stop that they take as a nation. 11 months and 20 days have passed at Sinai, and then they're going to go this stretch to Paran. Note that the word in verse 12 is journeys, not journey. They thought they were taking a journey to the promised land, but they're not. They're going to take multiple journeys, and the first stop is Paran, and we'll get there in a couple chapters. So they started out for the first time, the first of their journeys, according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses, 
finally we move. It's interesting how the Word of God has built this moving moment up for a very long time, longer than we like as human beings. Like, because we've studied the Bible, you're like, when are they going to move from Sinai? He takes you all through Leviticus, they don't move. Here we are in Numbers, and we're thinking, oh, they're going to start moving. And here we are all the way in chapter 10 before they move. God tends to do things a little slower than we would like as humans. Our instinct is to move now. Like, what's next, Lord? What's next? And instead of abiding in God where we're at, we always want to move to the next step. And God just doesn't do that. He sometimes makes them wait. So they start out for the first time according to the command of the Lord. If we're going to move, let's move when the Lord wants us to move. Not before, not earlier, not when we have a will to do it, but when God says to do it. And then when God does move, we can be relieved by it and celebrate it. The beauty of anticipation is when it's met, it's really satisfying. Finally, when Grant and I are working through a puzzle on one of our computer games and we fail and we fail and we fail and we fail, that's miserable. And we would like to succeed quicker than maybe our talents and abilities led us to. But when we finally figure it out, you want to just stand up and shout and cheer and go, oh, thank you. That's wonderful. And we'll go, woo hoo. And then stuff will say, you guys just wasted two hours on something that means nothing. We're like, yeah, but it sure feels good to finally figure this thing out. And it's a moment. And you think that the Israelites had to feel like that. Ah, finally, we get to move. When waiting on Moses and his God for so long, but now we get to just move and go where we're supposed to go. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So this is good. First time that God had to move was from Egypt, from slavery into the wilderness. And the second time God's going to move, they're thinking they're going from the wilderness into the promised land. But they're going to go from the wilderness to the wilderness. And they're going to go a little longer than they thought. So there's this release. It's the end of their long trial. And it's better. It's organized. They have their feasts. They have their seasons. Now I'm going to do the review. They've gotten their law in Leviticus. It's consecrated. They've gotten their priests, their sacrifices. These are all the things God's done while they've been not moving in the wilderness. Like think of the culture setting the institutions that have been built. They get their culture. They get a tabernacle. They've got these symbols of a relationship with God. They've got their trumpets. They've got their lampstand, their table of fellowship, their Ark of the Covenant. They've got all of these pieces. And they've got God leading them with the presence of a mighty God in their life, which they wouldn't have gotten unless they did all these things. They've got the Shekinah glory that shows them how to move. And they've got fellowship with God. Not only can they see him, but they've got a leader in Moses who talks to him directly. This is amazing. These are epic world-changing things that have happened while the people probably thought they were sitting there doing nothing, right? And this is one of those things you have to train teenagers in, right? It's not nothing, it's work. And work is good because you learn and you become disciplined and you gain character through some of these things. So on the east side we start with, remember the east side from Numbers 2-3, uh, and then we have two Levite groups. There's Gershon in the, uh, on the west and Merari from the north. Moses and Aaron's camp is going to be the east. It's not mentioned. So the priests are going to go with, and then we start moving. So here it is, verse 14. The standard of the camp of the children of Judah, remember that's the east side, set out first according to their armies. Over their army was Nashan, the son of Amminadab, right? And at this point, we've heard these names of these new leaders multiple times. And that's kind of a like we're being introduced to them because God's given these tribes new leaders. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nethanel, the son of Zuar. Over the army of the tribe of 
the children of Zebulun with Eliab, the son of Helen. And the then the tabernacle was taken down and the sons of Gershon, the sons of Merari, set out carrying the tabernacle, right? So it's the east side plus some of the other sides. The tabernacle equipment basically goes with the first army, right? So they go set out because they're going to arrive first in verse 21. The tabernacle will be all set up for when the implements and the furnishings arrive. So they have to get up early, move quick, get things going. And all I could think of is these awesome people in these churches. And we got to see this in Red Wing today. These wonderful people that help churches function. The behind the scenes people, you rarely know they're there. You can be a regular attender at this church, but these are the people that are the engine of the church. And when we arrive and we show up in the morning, everything's ready. It looks like it's all been organized and put together. The lights are on. The AC has caught up with the heat. And these are just people that get up early in the morning to do their thing so that other people can enjoy the presence of God. Praise the Lord for these people, right? They go first. They get to move first, and there's an honor in that. Then we get to the south side, verse 18. Uh, and the standard of the camp of Reuben set out to their armies. Over their army was Eliezer, the son of Shedur. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Simeon was Shemuel, the son of Zerushadai. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Gad was Elisaph, the son of Deuel. And the Kohathites set out carrying the holy things. The tabernacle would be prepared for their arrival, right? A side note. Then we get to the west side. These are Rachel's descendants. Um, Gershon has already left, so there, there's uh, room for them to move a little bit there. Verse 22, the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim set out according to their armies. Over their army was Elishema, the son of Minhud. Over the army of the children of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abidan, the son of Gideoni. All of those are said with a Minnesota accent. North side, Numbers 225 tells you that who's on that side. Merari has already taken off because they went first with the tabernacle equipment. Verse 25, the standard of the camp of the children of Dan, the rear guard of all the camps set out according to their armies. Notice they're setting out according to their armies. This is kind of cool because when they left Egypt, they were just a mob going through the wilderness, right? Probably wrecking everything they stepped on, just a, just a chaotic group. But now they're moving out according to their armies. They're in order. They're in a column. They're marching on a road that's been trampled by the Mararites already, right? And they, they are moving in an orderly fashion. This is not a mob moving through the wilderness. This is an organized, orderly group of godly people seeking after the Lord. That's kind of cool. Over their armies was Ahiezar, the son of Amishadai. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Asher was Pajael the son of Okrin, and over the army of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enan. Thus was the order of the march of the children of Israel according to their armies when they began their journey. There's an order to all of it. There's a singular journey here, and it's one stretch. God names each of the tribal leaders, and God follows the marching orders from earlier exactly. So what we saw earlier in Numbers is exactly what they're doing here. So I won't go back and make all those connections for you. If you want to, you can. Um, but they march in order. They're doing what God's commanded them to. They heard God. They took him seriously. They're doing what he said. And I keep coming back to this idea, especially as we, as we went through the law in Leviticus. Sometimes God says things that he thinks are good and he thinks are bad. And we wrestle with that as human beings. But here's the Israelites. He tells them where to march and they just march there. They just do what they're told. And it's a lot less struggle when you don't struggle with God and you just obey God and do what he says. And that takes a humility to know that we're not God. We don't get to tell God what's right and wrong. We get to listen to God because he defines right and wrong. 
And even the argument over right or wrong implies that there's a right or wrong giver, right, Mandy? That's what Ravi Zacharias says. Implies there's a moral lawgiver. And if there's a moral lawgiver that we have kind of written on our hearts, then maybe we should just obey that God, right? And do what God says is right. So this is the starting point. They began their journey is a great phrase too at the end of verse 28. I love the idea that preparing is not the goal. The promised land is the goal. And I, for me, this is one of the things that I wrestle with because I love books and I love reading and I love scholarship. I like philosophy. I like psychology, sociology. I like theology. I like it all. But that preparation does not get me to the Holy Land. That's not the end goal. And all of the order and organization, that's not the end goal either. In fact, that can become legalism really quickly, right? All the consecrating and sacrificing, the Nazarite vows, that preparation, that's not the Holy Land either. And we can become self-righteous when we start to do things and think that that's the end goal, is to just make dedications to the Lord and make vows to the Lord. That's not the end goal either. That's just the start of the journey, right? And we can get lost in all these preparation elements like this is the life of God, but that's not the life of God that he has for us. This is stuff that gets us there, right? So salvation is one of the things, and I think I grew up in a Baptist church where salvation was the whole theology, almost, at least the church I went to. And you think if you say the prayer of salvation, you're good for the rest of your life, which means you can go drinking on the weekends and play poker on Saturday, get up, go to church on Sunday, but you're already saved, so God forgives everything. And it was just this theology that messed me up for 30 years. And I got lost in it. It doesn't work. Salvation is not the goal. It's the starting point. When you become saved and commit your life to the Lord, now you can start walking in holiness with God. And that's the whole point of what we're doing. So I just thought that I got all that out of when they began their journey, right? So everything up to this point is preparation. Verse 29. Now Moses said to Hobab, Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we're going to set off for a place of which the Lord said, I'll give it to you. Come with us and we'll treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. Come with us. So this is, if you think the trumpets is an image of prayer, and you think this marching out is this amazing moment, this epic moment in the Bible that we've got to so far, they're leaving. The dust is in the air, the feet are on the ground, and they're moving finally. This is a great moment. Right immediately as we start moving in the Lord and this excitement happens, Moses' instinct is to turn to a Midianite, not an Israelite. Do you see that? He's turning to somebody who's not an Israelite saying, come with us. Right? This is an amazing biblical moment. And it is one of those links between the Old and New Testament. God has always had a heart for the Gentile. He's always opened an invitation for anybody that wants to come and live under his law the door is wide open. And we all praise the Lord for that because I think, except for Gary, we're all Gentiles, right? So what an amazing information. And at some point we've all said, yeah, we'll come with for this. If this is where the people of God are going, we'll jump in with that. So this is a really interesting thing. And again, it reminds me of the little Passover reference where you're like, that's a weird thing in the middle of this narrative. And what we're showing there is God's not about legalism. He's about this kind of the point of this is worshiping the Lord, not to get too finicky about other things. And here we get a very similar passage. The point of this is to invite people. And when you get, and I think this is the natural part. Of, we've seen this here in the Bible study. When you're getting fruit out of a Bible study and it blesses your life, it's natural to tell your friends and family that you're really enjoying this Bible study. Come with me and enjoy what we're doing because God's blessing me 
And the promise is he'll bless you too. If you really want to invest part of your life into studying the word of God with a bunch of other nuts that want to study the word of God, God's going to bless you for that. And the natural instinct is to invite everybody you know to come and study the word of God with you. And studying the word of God is just the foundation. And you've all seen that, right, over the months? The foundation is studying the word of God, but then this becomes the least important part of it. And for the teacher, that's got to be a humility thing. The most important part of it is the fellowship and living life together and supporting one another and being there when other people are struggling with things. And we're going to see struggles and trials because that's part of living life on this earth. Because we're not home yet. We're not at the promised land. We're still on the journey. So we're going to have those trials and tribulation. We will get blisters. Come with us and he will treat you well for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. We can say the same thing to everybody we know. Come with me because God's doing good things and he's promised he'll do good things for you too. Submit yourself to just studying the word of God. Um, this is how easy evangelism should be too. I just think this is so natural for Moses to turn to somebody he loves and says, please come with me, right? But like we find this, um, Hoban uh, would have been helpful too. Like, let's not forget that. This is a guy who was in the desert. doing This is who Moses went to when he left Egypt. So this is somebody who knows the desert well. He would know how to travel. He would be a contributor. Uh, and we'll see that in a couple verses. Um, and it turns out that Hoban, Hoban is not going to go with them, which doesn't mean that the passage isn't important. And I think that's something where Jesus said we'd be, he'd turn his disciples into fishers of men. And if you go fishing with me, you'll see that most of fishing is throwing your lure in the lake and not getting a thing to bite. But you, that's not the point of fishing. You just keep fishing because you trust that at some point something will bite. So in this case, Moses fishes, but he doesn't get a bite. And that's a great lesson for us too. The connection here is a relationship of love and family. It's not that he's out walking up to strangers telling them to come to Bible study, because that's weird, right? In this instance, that's not what's happening at all. He actually goes to his father-in-law and invites them. They've already been living life together. They already have a relationship. Second idea, what he's saying is God is saying things, so he points them to the word of Lord or the word of God. Um, and uh, we're setting out for the place which the Lord said, I will give to you. So he points them to the word of God. He points them to what God says. So I think that's an interesting kind of evangelism kind of method or approach. And then the third piece is that there's an invitation them to, to bring people along. And almost everyone I know who gets uh, to, who comes into a relationship with the Lord later in life gets kind of upset with the people they knew before they were saved that didn't introduce them to the gospel. And they'll say, how dare you love me so much that you don't share the gospel with me? Because if you love me, you wouldn't love me all the way to hell, right? You would share with me something that's a benefit in your life. But a lot of times as believers, we get nervous about sharing our faith and what we love about the Lord with people. And what a horrible thing to do with people we love and people we care about. Um, so just those three things. One, in this case, evangelism is with somebody they know and they're already living life with. Evangelism is pointing people to what God says, the word of God, come hear the word of God. And then three, there's a simple invitation that says, why don't you come with me instead of not coming with me? And that invitation is kind of the heart, I think, of people that have that gift of evangelism. So all the believers were invited. Uh, not everyone takes the invitation and that's okay. Verse 30, and he said to him, I will not go, but I'll depart to my own land and to my relatives. I'm going to go back to the things that are familiar to me. So Hobab has been helping Moses in some way, shape, or form. 
He's been giving up his time already. He's gone with Moses so far, but he's not going to go into this wilderness. It turns out if Hobab would have gone with Moses, he would have died in the wilderness. Right? So Hobab's actually kind of doing the right thing right now. You know, he's going to go retire. And, and so in, in some sense, that would remove us from an evangel evangelism kind of image here. But it, it turns out Hobab's actually kind of making the right choice because everyone but Joshua and Caleb are going to die in the wilderness because of the mistakes Israel makes. So when we invite people to come with us, sometimes they don't come. Uh, but Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, Matthew 4.19. So Moses said, verse 31, Please do not leave insomuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness, and you can be our eyes, and it shall be if you go with us. Indeed, it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us, he'll do the same to you. Moses clarifies the promise of God in verse 32, but look what he does in verse 31. He actually says, we have a purpose for you. You could be really valuable. Have you ever met someone and you just think, man, they'd be a valuable Christian? Boy, God's given them gifts and talents. It would be a wonderful thing to have in the kingdom. And that's part of what Moses says to them. I remember a, a devout Catholic guy I used to teach with, and he would always say, Dickers, you'd make such a good Catholic. And it was just, for, for all the things that you may get into with him over that, what a great evangelism tool. Man, you'd make a great Christian. At some point, if you ever accept that God's the Lord of your life, I would love to travel that journey with you. What an appealing invitation Moses makes. And it shows us a little bit of the strengths Moses had as a leader. But he actually tells Hobab what he would, you can be our eyes, and you know how we're supposed to camp. Like, Hobab knew the organization system. You already know what we're doing. It would be so great if you came with us. So he repeats it. He ups the ante. Moses doesn't give up at the first no. He actually gives a second invitation. And I hope that's an important thing we know. Sometimes when we want to invite people to church with us, to Bible study, to a campfire at the Vygatskys, we do those kinds of things and we invite people. Sometimes you got to invite people more than once. Because it's almost Minnesota polite to say no the first time. Oh, I don't want to be an imposition. Okay, you're not an imposition. We need somebody to cook the hot dogs. And you're an expert hot dog cooker. We could really use your help at this thing. That's kind of what Moses does. And he tells people what they're good at and what they can do. As humans, especially when we're in prison in our own sin, the enemy likes to tell us what we're not good at. The enemy loves to tell us how useless we are, how unimportant we are. And God does differently. He gives us new names. He gives us new purpose. He gives us gifts and spiritual gifts and talents. He wants something and knows how to give us what our gifts so that we can provide that to the church. Um, and that's a struggle I think we all have, even as believers. We're, you have the enemy telling us what we're not good at, and you've got God with that still quiet voice behind our ear saying, yeah, but you can do this pretty well. You and I will do this together. Come with us. Moses understands as a leader, he needs good people to be around him. He has to have other people as a team that will be effective and good. And that's part of what Moses is doing here. This is great leadership. Moses can't do it all by himself and he's recruiting people. And we get a glimpse of that through the word of God. God let us see this scene with him and Hobab um, so that we could understand what that looks like. As you get out of the wilderness and you start to move with, with the kingdom and with God, we need to be looking around and doing that with other people that have gifts and talents that can serve the Lord. So in verse 33, they depart from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day and they went out from the camp. So they moved from the mountain 
out uh, the mountain of the Lord that's here uh, in verse 33. It's still called, the Bedouins still call uh, the mountain of Moses or the mountain of the Lord. It's in Sinai. Uh, and there's still natives that live there that call it that, even though it's entirely a Muslim territory right now. The following God's will is not their own. These two verses restate that. They're following the Lord. They're not following their own path because their own path would take them straight to the promised land. But if you're going to follow the Lord, sometimes you're going in this direction when you think the Lord's taking you in this direction. And he probably is taking you there. He's just going to do this route to get you there that's going to be good for your soul. The ark is covered. It's carried out in front. It, of course, represents our Lord. Uh, it has both law and mercy as part of its construction, just as a reminder from back when we built the ark. It's a connection to God. It goes ahead. It prepares a place. And so it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. And we have these two prayers that Moses prays all the time. If he prayed these things and it gets written down and recorded, they must be important. Because if every time they move and every time they settle, these are the words that get spoken by Moses, that's part of why they're recorded here. So two things. When they move forward, the prayer is for God to do war for them. I wish more Christians got this. It's not our job to do battle. The battle is the Lord's. Our job is just to be awesome and to shine a light for other people to see. That's our job. And the prayer of Moses way back 3,500 years ago is, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and those who hate you flee before you. Let, can you just take care of our enemies for us? Right? And then there's the resting prayer. When you're not moving, abide with us because that's fitting too. So these two things, when you're in a season of change in your life and things are shifting and they're different and you're moving forward, you pray that the Lord just clears that path for you. And when it's a time to just be at rest and to be in a season when you can settle, what a wonderful thought to say, Lord, rest with us. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Just dwell among us again. And let's spend a season where it's just you and me, God. And we can kind of have that moment. So they have these two prayers. It's super responsive in timing. God does it. God does it. And then we pray it. So be it. I'm going to end with a quote from Charles, Charles Spurgeon, and you all know I love Charles Spurgeon, but sometimes he says stuff in such a way where you're like, oh, that's precious. So listen to this quote. I'm going to start reading it when Gary gives me the go-ahead here. <laughs> will you and I go home, this is Charles Spurgeon, will you and I go home tonight and pray this prayer by ourselves? Fervently laying hold of the horns of a God's altar I charge you, my brethren in Christ, don't neglect this private duty. Each of you go to your chambers, shut your door, and cry to him who hears you in secret. And let this, let this be the burden of your cry. Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered. This prayer Moses has for all of Israel is a private prayer that we can have with God. God, go with me when I go places and reside with me when I stay places. Remember last chapter in chapter 9, it was when the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud didn't move, they didn't. It was like movement and staying are all in God's hands. But these are the prayers that go with those two motions. What beautiful prayers that we have. And I would give you the same challenge. Go home tonight and pray this prayer of Moses to the Lord your God and watch his hand move in your life. And when you see his hand move, make sure you celebrate it and bring it back to Bible study next week when I say, what's going on in your life? What are some prayer requests? Watch for what God's doing. Wake up tomorrow morning and look for the cloud. 
Is the cloud up? Is it down? Where's God? And just go where God is. And look for those opportunities. Look for those people like Hobab in your life that you can turn to and invite them. And you all know this Bible study is open doors because we have visitors come sometimes and then the visitors go and we have a rotating door of people that come. We have a core of people that are here all the time. But it's an open invite to anyone you know. And if we need more space, we'll find more space. If anybody wants to sit down and hear the Word of God and go through the book of Numbers, I respect that person because that's an honorable thing to consecrate your time for is to hear what God has to say, just like Moses did and turned to do that. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we love you so much. What an honor it is that we can open the word of God and we can start with the foundation of your word. Lord, we pray and ask for you to go before us and scatter the enemies and the trials and the stresses and anxieties. Go before us and beat the COVID monster for us, Lord. Get that out of the way of our life and out of the way of our, our, our ongoing concern, Lord. Take care of the things that we see in the news and just handle them. Lord, protect your servants and guard them in trying times. Help us to live our lives, Lord, without fear because you go before us in all things. Help us to live wisely and to orderly organize ourselves so that when we move, we don't move foolishly. We move with thought and concern and care for others. Lord, when we stay and when we reside, give us peace. Come into our homes. Um, give us a place where we can abide with you and spend that time with you. Help us to make that time. Lord, make our days longer so that when we sacrifice our time to you, we seem to gain time instead of lose it. So Lord, help us to abide with you in prayer, in reading your word, in fellowship with other people. Lord, in worship and praise. And praise the Lord, we can still sing in the state of Minnesota. And help us to worship you and lift you up. Help us to blow the trumpets of prayer in all things so that we, um, Lord, communicate with you when we're ready to do things. Lord, we respond to you with prayer and lift you up. Be in this group. May your Holy Spirit be with us this week and guard over us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.